0: You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of 1 Samuel. If you have your Bibles with you, let's join Pastor Ryan now. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 18 to 20, three chapters, so we'll see how we do. How does that sound? Now you remember the context of where we're at here in chapter 17. uh, David has slain Goliath in a course, it's a famous passage in the Bible that we're all familiar with as, um, as David does really the unimaginable. He, he conquers uh, the hero of the Philistines, a, a man who some believe could have been as tall as uh, 10 feet, uh, at least 8 feet tall. Uh, some, some believe that he, he weighed upwards of a 1,000 pounds. This was not just a big guy, this was a giant. And David slew the giant, he did the unthinkable with a a sling and a stone. And at the end of chapter 17, David and Saul have a conversation, because you remember that Saul put a reward out on Goliath, and whoever took care of Goliath would marry one of his daughters, would live in a house at the palace, and would not have to pay taxes For the rest of their life. I mean it sounded like a pretty cool deal. And and so David and Saul have this conversation at the end of chapter 17. Trying to figure out all of the details. And chapter 18 just sort of transitions right from there. It says now when he had finished speaking to Saul. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved David as his own soul. And we need to translate the word soul as heart though. It, really, it's their their lives had a connection. There was a a real camaraderie between these two men. And as Jonathan hears David speaking to his dad, he he just really has a respect for David. There's a connection there, and and he realizes that David's not an ordinary man. And and he realizes that in everyone's eyes, he is supposed to be the king, Jonathan. I mean, he's the eldest son of the king, and, and everyone would assume that he's going to take the throne. And Jonathan realizes that that isn't going to be the case. But he's more than happy to give his throne, what would be rightfully his, to David. He realizes that this is a man that, you know what, I'll, I'll give it to him gladly. Not a problem. And he loved David. And, and there was a, a friendship here that was beyond the surface, It was a heart-to-heart friendship that that I don't think many men have at at all. I think ladies experience this regularly, but I don't think men do. I think sometimes guys read this and they just think, man, this is gay. Like, what in the world? That's the only way you can explain this, right? And and some people even think, some people that want to justify sin will say that Jonathan and David had an inappropriate homosexual kind of a relationship. And that is just ludicrous. What it is, is it's true masculinity that can love somebody other than yourself. That can truly care about somebody. That can have a heart for someone. That can care uh, uh, deeply and spiritually about somebody. And that, that's what was going on here. And it says that Saul took David that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. You remember how David was going back and forth? And and David would spend some time with Saul, and then he would go back to his father's house. And, and now Saul's putting an end to that. He's like, look, you're too valuable to me and to the kingdom. You make me look good, and I don't want you going back and forth. That's not going to last long. It's not going to last very long that Saul has this... Affinity for David. Pretty soon he's going to be threatened by him. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And so they make this agreement. And I'm assuming that this agreement was that they would never betray one another, that they would always have one another's back. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. And just like I was saying, Jonathan has no problem relinquishing what was rightfully his. And this shows you once again, we've seen Jonathan earlier in 1 Samuel and we've seen the character of Jonathan. We saw what happened when he conquered the Philistines and his dad took credit for it. And you didn't see him complaining. We saw what happened when Saul made the ridiculous oath that whoever ate would be killed and Jonathan didn't know about it and he, he ate to be refreshed and they were out in war and Saul made this, this stupid oath and Jonathan just took it in stride he dealt with that he dealt with the fact his dad was willing to kill him he dealt with the fact that his dad took credit for what he did we see him going out with his armor bearer and saying look God doesn't need a whole bunch of people he can use me he can use someone who has a heart for him and he was willing to take that step of faith and and go out on his own and that's the kind of character that Jonathan has. And we see it even here as he just relinquishes. A lot of people would be saying, look, this is mine. What are you doing? You're a threat to me. Get out of my life. I don't want you here, but not Jonathan at all. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. Uh, it, it could be that, that he prospered. And Saul set him over the men of war. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now it happened as they were, they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his Ten thousands. And so David has made a name for himself. He killed Goliath, and now the Lord's hand is on him, and wherever he goes, it says he behaved wisely. It could be that it should be translated, he prospered. God is prospering, David. His hand is upon him. People are beginning to recognize who he is. And women from all over the country come to celebrate and to sing. And what are they singing? Not just about Saul, but now it's about David. And we'll see here in verse 8 that Saul was very angry. Why was he angry? Because David was being applauded. And David was, was being recognized by the people. He, he was only being ascribed thousands. And David his ten thousands. And I don't think that there was really much to that. that I think Saul was really reading into that. I think they were, they were saying, look, Saul and David make a great team. What, what a great thing God is doing. And yet Saul and his pride just saw that David was being recognized and that David was, was being applauded by the people and he could not handle that at all. And I think as we make our way through these chapters, we, we really see the juxtaposition of Saul and David and, and who are we going to be. What kind of a person are we going to be? And we see with Saul that more and more he becomes paranoid. He becomes paranoid about his position and its terrible leadership. When you become afraid of other people that are under you being recognized. And that's what's happening here. That's why Saul was very angry. And the saying that is the song, this number one hit in the nation at the time. He didn't like it. He was threatened by it. He was paranoid. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me they've ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And David already had the kingdom. He just refused to recognize that. But Saul is now completely given over to jealousy, which has created paranoia in his life. And jealousy is a very, very strong emotion that can ruin relationships. It, it ruins families. It it ruins ministry. It creates paranoid leaders. About twelve years ago, I I was uh, speaking at a small Calvary Chapel uh, up in Washington, and you know I remember after the service uh, they they were making tapes, you know, and the pastor asked I, I overheard him he asked the guy that was making tapes how many tapes did you make tonight and. The guy said, you know, it was like five or something, you know, it, wasn't a, it was nothing. And, and he's like, oh, well, we don't normally make that many. And he, he just kind of made this big deal about the fact that, that people wanted the tape. And, I mean, gosh, 12 years ago, I could barely teach myself out of a wet paper sack. You know, why anybody would want the tape, I have no idea. But he was paranoid. And, and we were there for a time, and, and, and that's just the way he was. He never wanted uh, to allow anybody uh, to prosper in ministry. It, it was kind of his show. And that's such a dangerous place to be in, in ministry. It's such a dangerous place uh, for you guys. Uh, some of you are involved in leadership. Some of you are overseeing ministries. And you know what? Sometimes God will raise up people who begin to outshine you, who, who begin to maybe take some of the credit. Who begin to be recognized as talented and gifted and called by God. And maybe you're not receiving all of the attention. And and it's difficult. There's, there's no question that it's difficult. But as a leader, your job, my job is to, to have and allow people the opportunity to prosper and to do well. If you own a business and if you're an employer, don't set yourself up as the one that receives all the glory and all the attention. Let your people prosper. Let them do well. Let them be recognized. Let them use their gifts. But jealousy won't allow that. And if you have that in your heart, and and you have that in your life, God has to root that out of you. Otherwise, it will create paranoia. You'll always be wondering, are they going to take my place? Is God going to set me aside and use them? And you'll be running around and, and trying to get people to notice you and, and trying to get people to, to tell you how great you are and how wonderful you are and, and looking for compliments and, and kind of putting out little hints that, that you want people to recognize you. And it, and it begins to create a lack of respect. And it actually produces the opposite of what you're looking for. You're looking to be affirmed. You're looking for respect. And what it will create is people that disrespect you and who begin to despise you. And that's what happens with Saul. And it's easy in ministry to become paranoid. And, and I remember early on as a pastor here that it, it was easy for me to to worry about who was coming and who wasn't and who was leaving and, and, and who wasn't and being paranoid about that and, and kind of chasing people down and, and worried about, are they going to leave? Are, are they not happy? And, and there's a balance because I think sometimes pastors can get jaded where they just don't care. It's like, hey, there's the door. Don't let it hit you in the butt, you know. But that isn't the attitude that we ought to have. But at the same time, like, I don't chase people down. And if you're not being blessed and you're not being ministered to, then, man, go somewhere where you can be. And if this isn't the place, I don't want to try to convince you to stay. Because all that does is is create problems if you need to go then 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 you got to go and so I think I would say that to you guys who are in leadership. if people are are leaving, we don't need to be paranoid about that. if you're overseeing a ministry and, and you're depending on people to volunteer and and they want to move on and they want to Step out, or they want to go do something else. Don't try to hang on to them because all you'll have is people that don't really want to be there, and you're just better off without that. You're better off with a couple holes here and there that God will fill than to be having people there because they feel like they have to be because you're paranoid. So, Saul was very angry, he was paranoid, he was filled with jealousy. And Saul eyed David from that day forward. That basically means that he had the evil eye against him. It was just like he was watching every move, waiting to see, is he trying to undermine me? Is he taking my glory? Again, he's paranoid. And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. A couple interesting things, and we're going to see this a few times, is that this distressing spirit doesn't tell us exactly what it is, but it's from the Lord. And so I really think it's just a, a sense of, it's an understanding on Saul's part that God has left him, is what I think this is. It's, it's an understanding that he's no longer king, that God's no longer with him, and that his hand is not upon him. That's the distressing spirit. But interesting that Saul is so far from God, and yet he prophesies. And we're going to see him prophesy again, which I think speaks to the fact that just because you're speaking things that are true and that are from the Lord does not mean you're in a good place. God can use people who are miles away from him. God used a donkey to speak to Balaam. Just because someone seems to have the right things to say, and, and and their speech seems to be of the Lord, does not mean their heart is right at all. And interesting that David is playing music, he's praising the Lord, he's trying to minister to Saul, and Saul has a spear in his hand. David has a, an instrument of praise and ministry, and Saul has an instrument of death and destruction. What is it that's in your hand? Because what we have, and in, in, in what is sort of surrounding our life will be that which we use in time of difficulty. And all that Saul had was a spear. And so that's what he's going to use. And Saul cast the spear for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice, twice. That means that David's playing. Saul throws a spear. David dodges out of the way. The spear sticks in the wall. David leaves. He comes back. He picks up his guitar Saul has the spear again. He throws it at him a second time. I mean, I think once would be enough for me. It'd be like, okay, this guy is insane. I've had enough, I'm out. But David was just a a guy that trusted the Lord and, and knew that Saul had some problems, but he wanted to help him. Now, Saul was afraid of David. Here's this paranoia. Jealousy turns to fear because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. See, Saul recognized that. Saul recognized that that the Lord had departed from him and that his hand was upon David. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him a captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved wisely in all his ways and the Lord was with him. Therefore when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. Saul doesn't give David this position Because he wants to promote him. He gives him this position because he's hoping it will kill him. Then Saul said to David, here is my older daughter Mirab. I will give her to you as wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So David said to Saul, who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? And again, here's David's humility. He doesn't say, you know what? I've been anointed the king. Who are you anyway? Why don't you get out of my way? God's hand is upon me. No, he continues to, to be humble, waiting for God to put him in the, the place in his time. But it happened at that time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Maholite as a wife. So here's this woman that was supposed to be David's. It was part of the agreement. She's now been taken from him. And I'm sure Saul did it just to spite David. Now, Michael, Saul's daughter loved David and they told Saul and the thing pleased him. Now, based on what we know about Michael later, I think what pleases Saul is that he doesn't at all like Michael. I think he realizes that she's quite the handful, and that apparently uh, she takes after Saul's wife, her mother, as we'll see later what he calls his son. And so I think Saul's like, oh, this is perfect. I'll give him my daughter who's a witch, and this will be great. So Saul said, I will give her to him that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law today. And and apparently, Michael does love David, but she doesn't love his heart for the Lord. She loves his, his strength. She loves his passion. She loves the fact that he's famous. I think those are the things that she likes about David. And Saul commanded his servants, communicate with David secretly and say, look, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words in the hearing of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing I am a poor and lightly esteemed man? And the servants of Saul told him, saying, In this manner David spoke. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry but one hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Now again, I think I would be saying, we already had the agreement. Now you want me to go out and kill a hundred Philistines and cut off their foreskins and bring them to you? What kind of a crazy guy are you? We already made an agreement. I killed Goliath. I mean, isn't that enough? That was the dowry. And it was customary at that time to pay a dowry. The the man would, would pay the father for his loss, because you remember that everyone had to to make everything on their own and they raised their own crops and they milked cows and goats and, and they slaughtered their own animals and everything had to be done from scratch. And so when you lost a family member, it was a big deal. And in this situation with the king, she's a princess. And so her dowry would be even higher. It would be a large sum of money, but it's already been agreed upon. But David, again, doesn't claim his rights. He doesn't say, you know what, this is a joke. I'm supposed to be the king anyway. All the things I think we would be thinking, but David doesn't do that. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not expired. Therefore, David arose and went, he and his men, and killed 200 men of the Philistines And David brought their foreskins and they gave them in full count to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, as a wife. Now I want you guys to notice something about how to deal with people that manipulate you and people that ask you to do things that are absolutely ridiculous. What does David do? He doesn't allow Saul to manipulate him by just doing what he asks. He goes beyond What Saul asks and doubles what Saul had commanded him to do in a way saying to Saul, I'm not going to be manipulated by you. I'm not going to be put down by you. I'm not going to allow you to put uh, burdens upon me and to make me feel like your puppet. I'm not going to do that. So in a humble way, as Jesus said, if they compel you to, to take their things a mile, then you Go two miles. Jesus said, if they ask for your coat, then give them your tunic. In other words, go above and beyond. Don't let people manipulate you. But by having a servant's heart and by being humble, you're you're essentially taking charge of the situation. And, and not allowing people to rule you and to rule your emotions. Because typically what we would do is, is just throw a fit and be angry and gossip. And what we can do is just say, so, you know what? I'm going to go the extra mile. I'm going to go above and beyond and take control of the situation. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David, so Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war. And so it was, whenever they went out, that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul so that his name became highly esteemed. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. And so Saul puts an ultimatum out. I want you guys to kill David. I don't care if you like him. I don't care if he's your friend. I want him dead. So Jonathan told David saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And Jonathan really goes above and beyond because he had a few choices. He could have obeyed his dad, done what his dad said, or he could have just said, you know what, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to do that, but I'm also not going to do anything to stop it. But he went above all of those things and said, you know what, not only is this ridiculous, not only is this sinful, but I'm going to put a stop to it and I'm going to tell David about it. And there, there's a time, you guys, where obeying authority is not appropriate. And there's a time where children shouldn't obey their parents when they're asked to sin. And there's a time, like we see in the book of Acts, where we shouldn't obey the government. Like they said there, it's better to please God than men. And when you're asked to do something by someone in authority that is in opposition to God and to His word, then we obey Him above anybody else. And that's what Jonathan does. And Jonathan says in verse 3, And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe I will tell you. Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good toward you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. It's one thing to say something. It's another thing to follow through. And and many of us are good at, at making commitments. At saying, I'm going to do this and I'm not going to do that. But it's following through with it that really matters. And I've really come to a place just in the amount of time that I've been dealing with people. And and I don't verbalize it because that might be kind of rude. But when people tell me stuff, in my mind I'm just thinking, we'll see. We'll see if it happens. I want to believe that it will, but we'll see. Especially like new people at the church. because And I don't know if there's a science to this. But when a new person comes to the church and they tell me that this is the best church they've ever been at and they'll be back, I pretty much know they're never coming back. I don't know what it is about that, but I pretty much know they're never coming back because I never see those people ever again. If I had a dollar for every one of those people that said, like, this is the greatest thing, oh my gosh, I mean, whatever you need, I'll be there. And it's like, all right, we'll see, cool, never see them again. And then, you know, sometimes you'll just think about him. It's just like flash in your mind like, what about that guy? I forgot about that guy. And it's one thing to say something like Saul does here, but it's another thing to do it. And you guys, I, I would just give you a, a word of advice. Be careful of speaking before you truly think it through, especially as people in, involved in ministry. Don't make commitments that you have no intention or no ability to follow through with. And sometimes it's just, in our culture and in, in our society, we kind of just say stuff and, and, and we think like they know that I, I don't really intend to do that. Kind of like, hey, let's go have lunch sometime. Which is pretty much code word for, hey, have a nice week and I want you to think I like you and cool. And so when people say that to me, I'll be like, hey, when? When do you want to do it? Tomorrow? Friday? What, what do you think? If we're going to say something... We've got to make sure that we're going to follow through. And we all fall short of that. But let's not go around making commitments that we really can't keep, as we see Saul doing here. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in times past. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing music with his hand. Initially, this kind of worked for Saul. David would play some music and Saul would feel better. It's not working anymore. It's kind of like the escapism things that we bring into our life to try to escape reality. Eventually, those things don't work and we have to do something else. People look to a person to escape reality. And then eventually that person doesn't bring them the happiness that they once had. And so they go to somebody else because now all the memories and all the pain is coming back and you're not helping me anymore. Or maybe it's a drug, but that drug only helps you for so long. And then you either have to take more of it and more often or a different kind, or it's alcohol. And at first it's like, oh yeah, just a couple beers with your buddies and, and it's cool. But then it's more and more until you have to constantly always have it so that you're not really facing reality. And we have to be careful of that, that, that we're not trying to escape things because what's in our heart and the baggage that we're carrying, it will come out as it does here with Saul. He's got a spear in his hand. His heart is hard against God. He's filled with jealousy and paranoia. He's a mile away from the Lord. And David could play until his fingers fell off and it's not going to help. Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with his spear. It's kind of like, you know, I'm tired of you. And I mean, I just like picture the scene here. You know, because in my mind, they're sitting like in a living room. And David's playing and he's kind of got big eyes like, you know, when is he going to throw that spear at me? And, and Saul's just sitting there, you know, just kind of like, it's just a, a really weird scene. And David is like Houdini, apparently. Because, or Saul's a really bad spear thrower. One of the two. Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall, but he slipped away from Saul's presence. I mean, it's like, is he a ghost? He just slips away. And he drove the spear into the wall. And I can just imagine that Saul is getting really ticked off about this. Like, what in the world? So David fled and escaped that night. Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So she knows her dad is going to kill David. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went and escaped, fled and escaped. And Michael took an image, a household idol, and laid it in the bed, put a cover of goat's hair for his head, and covered it with clothes. Now, why this idol is in David's house, I have no idea, except that David is not known for being a great leader in his own family. And I think this is just sort of the beginning of that. We'll see that throughout his life, that David was a terrible father, which again, I think shows us that you can be an amazing guy, that you can be used by the Lord and be conflicted and have some real areas of weakness. David was a man after God's own heart. And yet he was a terrible father and he was a terrible leader in his own house. And I think this just sort of demonstrates that. He didn't have the courage to tell his wife, you know what? That offends my God. We're not going to have that in my house. But Michael tries to to buy David some time. So she puts this image in the bed and goat's hair over it. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David. David saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. In other words, hey, if you're afraid that he's contagious or whatever, then just pick up the whole bed and bring it to me. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head. Then Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? So now she's totally turned her back on her husband. She just threw him under the bus. Oh, he was going to kill me, dad. I didn't know what else to do. So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Nahoth. Now it was told Saul saying, take note, David is at Nahoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the group of prophets prophesying, And Samuel standing as a leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And when Saul saw, and when Saul was told, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. Then Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. And so he keeps sending these messengers to Naoth, where Samuel and David are, and there was a school of prophecy there that... We'll we'll hear about later. And these prophets are there. And they begin to prophesy. And these guys are filled with the spirit. They prophesy. They're they're singing praises to the Lord. They're involved in, in, in hearing from God. And speaking the words of God. And they go back. It's like look we can't be in opposition to God. And this happens three times. Finally Saul went to Ramah. And came to the great well. That is in Seku. And he said... Where are Samuel and David? And someone said, Indeed, they are at Naoth and Ramah. So he went there to Naoth and Ramah. Then the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner. And lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, Is Saul also among the prophets? And so here again is just a crazy scene of Saul stripping naked, prophesying. And I think God is just bringing Saul to a a place of complete humility. And and showing Saul that he really has no control over his life. That the events that are going to happen are ordered by God. And that God is putting everything exactly the way he wants it to be. And know that in your own life. That no matter what is going on. Like we're going to see with David over the next really... All the way through the rest of 1 Samuel. That David's life is falling apart. And yet God is at the very center of it. David is on top of the world. Married to the king's daughter. Living in the palace. In charge of a thousand men. Going to be king at some point. He's on top of the world. And then everything is now being taken from him. His relationship with Saul. I mean they were close at one point, And now Saul wants to kill him. We're going to see in the next chapter, his relationship with Jonathan. They can't be around each other anymore. He loses his family. And in chapter 21, we're going to see him get so far to the end of himself that he pretends madness, drooling out of his mouth, scratching the wall, trying to avoid being killed, finally fleeing to the cave of Adullam. And you guys, that is really what God is wanting to do through those circumstances is he has a place that he wants to get us. And he'll take anything from us temporally to bring us to that place that he wants us to be. He wanted David to be in that cave. It was in that cave where I think I would be feeling sorry for myself. And I would be reflecting on all of the craziness and God, what are you doing? And why am I not on the throne? And, And I was on top of the world and you've taken everything from me. But what does David do? He writes several psalms in that cave. One of which is Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Amazing. You see, you can take everything from a guy like David. You can take his kingdom. You can take his power. You can take his position. You can take his family. You can take his wealth. But you can't take his heart. And see, you can give everything to a guy like Saul. You can give him power and prestige, and money, and influence, but you can't change his heart. And so he's still a douchebag. It's the bottom line. That, that's, that's Saul. You, you can't do anything to, to change somebody's heart. And you can't do anything to take the, the heart that somebody has for the Lord. You, you can't take that from somebody. You can take everything they have, but you can't take their heart for God. And that's why when David has nothing And he's in a cave, he's still praising God. And we see Samuel here, or or Saul here, naked at the complete end of himself. And God was ordering both of these men's lives. And that's what we need to know, you guys. Whatever you're going through, God is ordering that. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah, and went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? David's human. He thinks these things. He's frustrated. What have I done? What's going on? Why does your father hate me so much? So Jonathan said to him, By no means. You shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Somehow or another, Jonathan was was living in a little bit of self-deception. I don't know why he thought that Saul all of a sudden was a nice guy. Why he thought that he would tell his son everything. He wanted to kill Jonathan not long before this. Then David took an oath again and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And so David's a realist. So Jonathan said to David, Whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. And David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he says, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore, you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? But Jonathan said, far be it from you. For if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then I would not, then would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me? Or what if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. And so they're, they're making a plan. It's David's way of seeing what his fate in the kingdom is going to be. And he makes a plan that at the new moon, when they would have a celebration for three days in a row, that David wouldn't be there. And if Saul misses him and gets angry, then David knows this is his sign from the Lord that he needs to take off, that he needs to flee. But if he says, oh, it's not a big deal, I'm glad he went home and spent time with his family, then then he would know that from the Lord he was safe. And David wants to know from Jonathan, okay, if we're going to make this agreement and I'm going to hide out there, then who's going to tell me? Because certainly you can't just come out and tell me because your father's going to know. And so... What if your father is angry and, and gets mad at you also for trying to cover for me? What are we going to do? So they make a plan. They go out in the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father, kind of field him out, searched him out, sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is, a, there is good toward David, and I do not sin to you and tell you, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan." But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety, and the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die. But you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. And later we'll see with Mephibosheth that that David holds up his end of this covenant. Now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed and remain by the stone easel. Then I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. And there I will send a lad saying, go find the arrows. If I expressly say to the lad, look, the arrows are on this side of you, get them and come. Then as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. But if I say thus to the young man, look, the arrows are beyond you, go your way for the Lord has sent you away. And as for that matter, which you and I have spoken of. Indeed, the Lord be between you and me forever. Then David hid in the field. And when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now the king sat on his seat as at other times, on a seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day for he thought something has happened to him. He is unclean. Surely he is unclean. And it happened the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why is the son of Jesse not come to eat, either yesterday or today? So Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, Please let me go, for our family has a sacrifice in the city. And my brother has commanded me to be there. And now if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brother's Therefore, he has not come to the king's table. Now, you know with your kids that when they're lying to you, they've got to do a really, really good job to fool you. And apparently, Jonathan doesn't do a very good job. Saul's raised Jonathan. I'm sure he's seen him lie before. And Jonathan's probably not making eye contact and kind of stuttering, trying to find his words. And Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Now, I mean, just put in your own words, right? Again, we, we, try, to, we try to sanitize the Bible. And, and actually, uh, some of the English versions of the Bible have really done it a disservice. And the Bible is not always sanitary. And Saul right here is showing exactly what he thinks of his wife and probably what he thought of Michael, too. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established nor your kingdom. Now therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. He's threatening Jonathan with something that's completely out of his hands. I'm sure Jonathan was thinking, look, dad, it's not mine anyway. God's already given it to David. So you can threaten me all you want that I won't succeed you. But you have no power. God's in control. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? Then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him. It's basically the way he handles problems. Conflict resolution. Throw a spear. But you know what? Some of us are doing the exact same thing in our own families, in our own workplaces, Maybe not physically with a spear, but with our words. We're pinning people up against the wall. We're putting people down and we're ripping into people. And and that's how we are handling conflict. And that's what's in your hand is is your cutting words and your harsh tones and, and those things that are hurting others. Saul tried to kill him, but by which Jonathan knew it was determined by his father to kill David. And so the spear that that Saul threw at Jonathan, he knew this is really intended for David. Things aren't looking good. He knows what he has to do. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. And so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David, and a little lad was with him. Then he said to his lad, "'Now run, find the arrows which I shoot,' As the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the lad had come to the place where the arrow was, which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan cried out after the lad, Make haste, hurry, do not delay. The the little kid's probably thinking like, my gosh, what's the rush? You know, just running around like, okay, I'm getting it. But Jonathan wasn't talking to the kid, he was talking to David. So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master, but the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, go carry them to the city. And so I think what must be going on here is that Jonathan brought the kid out so that no one would suspect anything. Jonathan was a warrior. It would be normal for him to to practice, to take someone with him, to to help him to retrieve his arrows. I don't think Saul would be suspicious. He knows that Jonathan was upset. You know, it's kind of like he's going to go get his aggression out, you know, with the bow and arrow. But this was Jonathan's way of, of meeting with David so that no one would know. So he sends the lad back. And as soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground, and bowed down three times. And they kissed one another, and they wept together, but David more so. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. And next week, as we get into chapter 21 and, and 22, we're going to see David fleeing and ending up in the cave of Adullam, as I talked about. And you guys, what what I want to leave you with is God will... Use anything in your life to bring you to that place that he wants you to be at. All of the things that we're going to read about David, and there are more chapters dedicated to David's life than anyone in the Bible except Jesus. We have a, a, a large picture to draw from in David's life. And all of these things are preparation. All of the things that are going on, everything has been taken from David at this point, as I talked about. He's got nothing. His family, his kingdom, his power, his wealth, his position, his friends. Even Samuel can't go with him. Everything has been taken from him. He will be all alone. And and maybe some of you feel like that right now. Like your life is being handled by somebody else. Like things are being taken from you. Like a job, like a relationship, a marriage. And it seems like somebody else is controlling your life and, and somebody else is driving the way you feel. You, that job was taken from you and now you're broke, and Now you're struggling to provide for your family. And why did this happen? And why is somebody else in control? And, and here's the thing, is that ultimately God is in control. Yes, there may be a Saul slinging spears at you. Yes, you you may have a Michael who is betraying you. Yeah, you may have a, a Jonathan or a Samuel, a person in your life that you're separated from and you can't be with and, and that you're lonely and it's out of your control. But ultimately, you guys, God is allowing it and it's all preparation for what he has for you. And you may be in that cave, in that place where you're just at the bottom. Life could not get any more empty and dark and lonely and depressing. And you have a choice of what you're going to do in that situation. You have a choice to be like David and to handle difficulty and to praise the Lord at all times. That's what God would have for you. And you don't know what you're being prepared for. Ultimately, you're being prepared for eternity. That's what you're being prepared for. Who knows what God is using these things in your life for here you may You may never know I think of somebody like Amy Carmichael who spent twenty years bedridden and she she was being mightily used by the Lord and starting orphanages and and reaching many people for christ and and then her ministry was i 'm sure in her mind put on hold and she was bedridden and yet it was there that she wrote all of the books that she wrote and and God has used those for decades. God has used those books to encourage and minister to far more people than she could have ever ministered to if she was healthy. The same with Paul. I'm sure that Paul thought to himself, Lord, there are people I need to reach. God, there are people that that need you. I'm the one that can bring it to them. You've called me to be an apostle, to plant churches. What am I doing here in a Roman prison? This is stupid. But it was there that Paul penned The books of the New Testament that we are so blessed by and encouraged by. John, the Apostle John, boiled alive in oil. It didn't kill him. So they sent him out to Patmos to be isolated so that no one would hear about the fact that he was boiled alive in oil and didn't die. And the Caesar at the time didn't want that testimony to circle about. So he banished him to Patmos. And it was there that John penned the book of Revelation. And so you guys, you don't know what God is doing, but learn from David how to handle difficulty, how to have the right perspective, how to understand that God is organizing all the events of your life. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank you for, for these amazing narratives. God, these, these stories that speak right to where we're at today. And, and God, I just pray that, that we would appropriate these truths and that we would learn and grow from them. And that God, we would have a heart like David. God, that we would see that it isn't about what we have. God, because we can have everything in the world and still be a Saul. Or we can have everything taken from us and still be a David. And God, maybe we're in a season right now where where a lot of stuff's being taken from us and we just don't understand it. And God, we feel like we're in that place of darkness and loneliness. And yet, Lord, it's in that place that you want us to just completely surrender to you and to sing praises to you and to allow you to do your work in our life. And so, God, do that. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.